This is Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic, and I'm your host, Michael Crawford Zimring. This podcast addresses the issues of climate change by bringing you stories from women environmental leaders who are on the front lines addressing issues that are very real, not only to themselves, but to their families and communities. We have created a platform that looks at climate change differently and chooses to amplify the voices of these women who are committed to bringing innovation and compassion to the problems that affect us all. While we acknowledge the magnitude of the problem and its challenges, we choose not to be powerless. We invite you to join us, listen to the podcast, and subscribe to the website evoicesrising.com. We partner with Tree Sisters and make a donation on your behalf when you subscribe. We also publish a monthly blog and newsletter with resources on our website. Thank you for listening. Today, my guest is Dr. Ellen Kelsey, a leading scholar, spokesperson, and educator whose specialty is evidence-based hope. She is also an award-winning author of environmental books for children and adults. Dr. Kelsey consults and works with a wide variety of institutes, including the Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society, the Zoological Society of London, and the Monterey Bay Aquarium in California. In 2019, she was a visiting scholar at Stanford, working with an interdisciplinary think tank to study and strategize on hope and environmental issues. Dr. Kelsey's latest book is Hope Matters, Why Changing the Way We Think is Critical to Solving the Environmental Crisis. And that is exactly what we will be talking about today. Dr. Ellen Kelsey, welcome to Environmental Voices Rising. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Before we dive into your book, I'd like to go back to Ocean Optimism, the Twitter campaign you started with a couple of other ocean conservationists. Hashtag Ocean Optimism was about successes and not the usual doom and gloom stories that were often being presented by mainstream media. It turned out to be hugely successful with over 95 million shares. I'm curious, how did you start a Twitter campaign? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it was interesting. I was able to do that project with Heather Coldaway, who's at the Zoological Society of London, and Nancy Knowlton, who's at the Smithsonian Institution. I knew both of those women were really interested in this question of how we could amplify successes more. And I had been really aware of, I'd worked a lot in marine protected areas and those kinds of things. And I was really aware that if you ask scientists about things that they're working on that were successful, they can give you examples, you know, their solutions abound. And yet they were really hard to find. You almost had to go and find the scientist and ask them that directly. And since that time, I've come to understand much better. That's because both the media that we typically learn about the environment from is very heavily oriented in a problem identification way. So almost all the news that we hear about the environment is around what's broken. And that's important because those are really important issues. But it means that we almost never hear about solutions. And the same thing is true for our academic publications. So almost all the publications we read similarly are good at identifying problems 
are much less strong in the marine world anyway on identifying solutions and, and the things that we want to amplify. And so I had gotten together with these two women. I thought I was inviting them to come to a meeting in Monterey, California, which is where I was living at the time, because I thought that they were both visiting close to that area. It turns out they weren't. And Nancy came all the way from Washington, D.C., and Heather came all the way from London, England, (laughs) just to get together. And one of the things that was kind of wonderful from a women's perspective, I had been to Hedgebrook, which is a wonderful writing retreat just for women on Whitby Island in Washington state. And one of the things they practice there is this idea of radical hospitality. And in radical hospitality, you're trying to help someone be their most creative by making a lovely space for them and delicious food and make them as comfortable as possible so they can take risks in their writing and that sort of thing. So I decided when I had invited these two women, I would create a radical hospitality weekend and we would spend our time talking about hope and how we might be able to make the solutions that actually exist in the world more readily available. So we weren't thinking about a Twitter campaign or anything. We were just thinking we talk through it and figure out what we do. Just a very short sidetrack on that was I was speaking at my public library two days before Heather and Nancy were coming for this meeting. And I was saying to my community, I'm a little bit nervous on the radical hospitality because I'm a terrible cook. And I just sort of said it casually, you know, but it was weighing on my mind. Now I love to cook, but at the time I couldn't cook. So anyway, what ended up happening was Nancy and Heather came to my house in Monterey. We had all the comfortable beds and all that sort of thing happening. And then just as we started our conversations, there was a knock at the door and a whole bunch of people who had been at the library showed up with food, warm soup, fresh made cookies. And I share that story because I really think it made a difference to all of us. It made us feel like we were part of a bigger community that was there for us, even though no organization that I'm aware of had put that together. It just happened. And so we went from there to having really good conversations and then inviting some other people along. We ended up having a a weekend, one other weekend, a a few months later in London, England, (laughs) And we said, in 48 hours, whatever we have out of this, we're going to do something with it. And so by 48 hours later, we had come up with a hashtag. We decided we would release that hashtag to invite people to share examples. I'm a writer. Nancy was a writer. We would invite other people we knew who were writers to write articles to start with, to sort of spread the word. And our joke was, wouldn't it be great if we could make a viral campaign? And in fact, it went viral. (laughs) So it was really, but I think that's only because at the time, We thought that we'd have to interview individual scientists to find these solutions. But the truth was, all kinds of organizations were aware of solutions and had been writing about them. It's just there was no place where they were collected. And so it turned out the hashtag was, at that time, a really good place to share. And it's since gone on now. Nancy took it to the Smithsonian, and they now do a huge international earth optimism program. There's conservation optimism, which runs out of the University of Oxford. Ocean optimism, which is what we started, is now having its own podcast. And the great thing was we really knew we didn't want to own it or or control it in any way. We just wanted to create a place of gathering. So... That gathering of food turned into a gathering of solutions, which was great. And it continues. It's very well used now. And people have migrated it and, and made a Instagram site around it and a Facebook site and others have made websites. It's really just taken off and had its own life and continues now. People are posting in other languages other than English. Just what you would wish. Exactly. So your wish came true. And it's so important, I think, the gathering of solutions. Like the stories are there. 
the stories are there, and the media is really missing them, really missing them. I wanted to get back to your book, which Hope Matters, and really talk about hope, because that was actually part of what, uh, when I started this podcast, was about hope and inspiration. So I know for many people, the word hope is not really a helpful word. They think it's false false hope or wishful thinking or naively trying to think positive when you actually don't really believe in it. But you are all about hope. And your book is so full of offerings of perspectives on hope, philosophical, psychological, spiritual, everyday feelings, poetry, science, and nature. And you have laid out so many ways to think about hope. I know we can't cover them all, but I really am want to promote that people read the book just to have the opportunity. So can you start us out with what hope is and what it is not? Mm, Well, I really appreciate that, that kind way of expressing that book. Thank you for that. I think what's in perhaps a few things that are helpful to my thinking around it is that I think there's an important distinction between hopeful, evidence-based hope and wishful thinking. And you, you touched on that. I think when we're wishful thinking, we're kind of giving our agency to someone else. We're wishing that something would happen, almost an act of some other being would make it happen and come along and rescue us, that kind of feeling, you know? Whereas evidence-based hope is about the things that actually are happening and the agency sits within us, the things that we know to do that we continue to do. So there's this idea of hope punk, which you may have heard of, I really like as a social expression. And hope punk sits against grim, dark and noble bright. So in a noble bright narrative, it's this idea that, you know, a prince comes along and rescues you. Or or I, I think sometimes Greta Thunberg is positioned this way. I don't think she positions herself that way. But a heroine or a hero comes along and, and rescues us all. And then grim dark is this dystopian, everything is fatalistically ruined. And I think fatalism is an, also an important idea around hope because sometimes what makes people feel hopeless is they feel quite cynical and fatalistic about the outcome. And that's, that's our real issue with climate change is that many young people feel that the world is already past ruined. They feel fatalistic. And hope, to me, keeps an openness around the idea that we really don't know how things are going to turn out. We can look at the evidence of where they are now, but our models and things are are forecast. They're not foregone conclusions. So I think that's an important distinction, too. And with hope punk, the idea is we act in our best ways, even if we didn't think something could happen. We'd still proceed in this good way. And I think that's a useful one for those who feel they can't quite bring themselves to imagine a better future, but they are able to be in kind of a meaningful present. And it is interesting in the palliative care literature, the idea of hope as not a future orientation, but a meaningful present is is quite dominant, which again, I find really useful. I think sometimes people really do want hope to be something substantial and are looking for a way to express it. Mm -hmm. And we do know that hope has, like most emotions, it has a contagious aspect to it. And so when we are, you know, last year in 2020, doom scrolling was a word of the year. And that's when we just keep looking at our devices and seeing more and more bad news. And we know that that actually infects us with feelings of hopelessness. You know, so I think hope also has this contagious aspect to it, as does, unfortunately, hopelessness. And then I think another criteria that I think about a lot is that many people are nervous to talk about hope around critical issues like climate change because they're afraid it will make people complacent. 
But the literature around that doesn't bear out. In fact, you're much more likely to become apathetic if you feel hopeless than you are to become complacent if you feel hopeful. And in fact, when we think of hope in a collective way, and a a lot of times because of that contagious aspect, the collective really matters. When we have a meaningful purpose, we feel compassionate towards others, we see that relationship matters, we're much more likely to stick with difficult things and move them forward than we are when we feel hopeless and don't feel like we have any agency. You're saying that hope is contagious and actually gives us agency and supports collective action. Yeah, and I you know, I like to use small examples and big examples. If you think about in 2019, just before we hit the pandemic, we were in this period of huge climate justice marches, you know, all the youth marches for the climate. And then we hit a period where it's what journalists call a media eclipse because one issue sort of takes over the media. We don't hear much of other things. So we had a media eclipse around COVID-19, which makes sense. We understand. But it's led many people to think that, oh, all that climate change interest has diminished or gone away. But in fact, if you look statistically at research, concern around climate change actually increased during the time of COVID in many places, or at least held strong. And now we're at the point where um, one of the direct outcomes of those climate justice marches has been these declarations of climate emergencies. And when you declare a climate emergency, then there's a, you put into place planning of how to deal with climate change. You know, it's, it's the step to getting to these actions. And we are at the point now where one in every eight people on earth lives in a place that has declared a climate emergency. So that's in 2022, you know, so just in those few years, those small marches, which often occurred around a public school, have turned into one in eight people on earth live in a place where that kind of emergency has been declared. So I think these things are very powerful. And there's often this tension in climate change between individual action is is diminished or seen as a scapegoating. If you do that, you're not holding the corporations accountable. You know, again, both we, things we need all We need both all of it. Matter. We need exactly. all of it. Exactly. And it's all powerful in its own way. You know. In the chapter, Hope is Contagious, you talk about missing an essential middle step. And I'll read it for you. What's missing is an essential middle step. This middle step is where creativity, innovation, and imaginative visioning happens. We need to nurture the capacity to imagine something beyond what is. Mm, thank you. Yeah, that's that. Thank you for helping me with that. <laughs> I, uh, no, I really believe that. And one of the things we know is that when we feel really fearful, and we do know that fear and shame have been the dominant ways that we've tried to create action around these urgent issues like climate change. But when we do that, it really shuts down creativity and it also shuts down collectiveness. So we know that when we're super afraid of something, we think more about just ourselves and we tend to be really kind of restricted in the kinds of ideas that we have. And so climate change and other big issues, of course, the thing we need is more collective action and more creativity. And so I think even our language matters. Like a lot of times when we talk about the environment, we say, if we do this, then this thing could happen. It's all this future orientation. And I think it's much more important that we say, because people have been doing these things, now we know this thing works. 
And then we want to amplify that in creative directions. And one of the exciting things I think that's happening right now with the youth climate justice movement, you know, 42% of people on earth are 25 years of age or younger. That's a massive number of people. And the two values that come up over and over again are social justice and climate change as being important across socioeconomic levels, across different countries. And so what we're seeing there is this attention to this mashup of arts and science. So finding really creative ways to engage other people that don't just fall into, you know, here are the top five things to do, but instead singing for what we want or, you know, making materials, knitting our way into what we think is important. All of these creative expressions that are the kinds of things we feel compelled to do allows us to work within um, communities that we relate to. And just uh, very recently, I've been following this Intersectional Environmentalist Council, which is a whole group of social influencers, you know, who are working on different platforms, whether that be TikTok or wherever they're choosing. And they are intentionally identifying as a queer brown vegan. They're using their identity and how they wish to be in the world as a way to engage people with these important issues of our time. And so I, I, to me, it's a, that's a highly creative and highly exciting recognition of the diversity of ourselves and the diversity of the issues that, that we're facing. And creativity is not just limited to humans. In another section of your book, you talk about nature and species, the species who are highly creative, like in the section, Welcome Back the Whales, where you talk about the recovery of whales and how that recovery creates conditions in the ocean for other species to survive. Mm -hmm. I think that's super important. Well, there's 8.7 million other species on Earth. That's the current number that scientists are most comfortable with, most consensus around. And those species all have agency, right? They all have the capacity to act and to do things. And so we know, for example, that since the end of widespread commercial whaling, that humpback whales, many species of whales, but humpbacks in particular, have been really increasing in their numbers. So I think it's every population but two has been really rapidly increasing. And one of the great impacts of that is that those whales are wonderful animals, so there's more of them, which is great. And it contributes to ocean health in terms of the diversity of other species. And we are in the situation where the International Monetary Fund now says each of those whales is worth $2 million in terms of its carbon capture, because as whales move up and down through the water, they move plankton, phytoplankton up to the surface, and that phytoplankton is capturing carbon. And it's also creating the oxygen that, you know, two out of every three breaths we take is coming from those ocean plants. So I think this really a recognition that the more we do to, to help the resilience of biodiversity, the more benefits we have for climate change. And the point you made, the beautiful point, which is we are also just nature. When we blow a kiss to the world, we spread pollen that could become a plant. I mean, we are also part of the system. And the more that we, there's been a tremendous amount of research done in the last 10 years or so, really showing us how deeply important those connections are to our emotional health and our well-being and our physical health. And so I think we have this reinforcing system of the more we recognize ourselves as intimately connected within an ecosystem worldview, and the more we do things like right now, many countries have signed on to the idea of protecting 30% of the earth and 30% of the water by the year 2030. That's super important because as more marine protected areas have come into place, that really reinforces the recovery of whales post-whaling. So these things all feed on each other. 
and they become really nature-based solutions to the problems that we face. And there's a lot of work on, you know, the resilience of coral reef fish, for example. So when we hear of coral bleaching events in Australia, we can feel very much discouraged that there's no hope, you know. But we do know that they have this capacity in some of those fishes for what they call epigenetic resilience. So as their parents contend with a problem in the coral reef, they actually pass along the situation where the young have, can express those genes in a way that are advantageous for those young And so what I take from that is not that we don't have to worry about climate change, we must act and are, but that we buy ourselves as the more we do that, also this resilience is there, which means we're not sunk. Yeah, I just think it makes us want to act more. Thank you for that reminder. We are not sunk. And even if we are not sunk, we are still looking for ways to do something. I was really affected by a story you told in the afterword of your book about making a presentation at a workshop on hope and climate change. And one of the participants asked what he could do because his daughter was so distressed and overwhelmed about what she was learning about climate change. And this highlights the damage that these doom and gloom scenarios convey to the public. You gave a beautiful answer about how to support this child and also support all these young people who are now over 40% of the global population and feeling not only the effects of climate change, but also the effects of the stories we tell about it. Mm -hmm. It's super important. And it's interesting. There was just in 2021, a major international report that showed three out of four youth between the ages of 16 and 25 feel deeply worried that there won't be a future, like a fatalistic sense, three out of four. That's a huge number. And many studies looking at children under the age of eight, you know, really young kids. So it's it's a critical uh, and is recognized in many countries as a, as a significant mental health issue. And of course, with COVID, we recognize that there's lots of mental health challenges too. So it is crucial not only as a climate change and biodiversity issue, but as a human health issue to really think about this. And I think two things are really important in that. One is is creating safe spaces for people of whatever age to express their feelings. And Lisa Kretz, who's an academic I really love, they talk about this idea of outlaw emotions. So grief and anger and despair, often things are harder to talk about but we need those safe spaces. So one of the things I did at the beginning of the pandemic, myself and a group of other academics got together and we created a website called the Existential Toolkit for Climate Justice Educators. It's a long word, but you can go look for it. You have a good acronym. (laughs) (laughs) We need one. (laughs) But if you just even do Existential Toolkit Climate Change, it'll come up. Anyway, it's it's a whole compilation of ways of creating safe spaces for people to share their emotions. I think that's critical. So when that child is stockpiling plastic under her bed because she's so worried about ocean plastic, it's really important to talk about those feelings. And then secondly, and equally importantly, I think, is helping that child to know, you know, there are over 130 countries that have signed on to legislation or tariffs or whatever around ocean pollution, plastic pollution. And the Monterey Bay Aquarium just last week announced that its whole gift shop sells nothing that has single-use plastic in it. 
So they had to work with all these toy manufacturers and everything to shift what goods were coming into their gift shop, not just how it's packaged, but actually the products themselves. And so I think it really matters to know what is happening so that when one feels these feelings that, you know, I can't do enough and I can't save the world from this massive problem, it helps to know in an accurate way the complexity and scale of of actions that are in fact in place and are having an impact. So both things matter, the expression of real feelings and up-to-date information. And having having ways to engage probably back with with solutions, to engage with solutions, to engage with nature. Mm-hmm. These are all time spent outside, you know, wondering about the wonder. Exactly, exactly. You said that the protests were hopeful actions. Could you explain how the protests are hopeful actions? Oh, I think they're really hopeful because right away we see, in fact, historically we're at, just before the pandemic, we were, we're and, and now I should say those protests continue online, they continue in lots of other ways. But at the point before the pandemic hit, we were seeing more protests around the world than really we've ever seen. And I think that's about people expressing the things that really matter to them. And when you're able to see that it's not just you who cares about this, it's millions of people care about this. And the second part, that it's not just people saying, holding up their hands. When we see things like solutions journalism, which has been this really rapidly increasing, I think it's now across 137 countries or something that have over you know 2,000 news outlets that are looking just as rigorously at solutions, reporting on those in a rigorous way as we would at problems. That's changing the narrative in a very important way because when you know what works, then you can protest for that. (laughs) You can say, you know, we know that protected areas really work. They really work. They're fraught with problems, how you maintain them, how you establish them, how you survey them. You know, all of those things are also true. Yet when we look across the research evidence, marine protected areas, land-based protected areas, now many protected areas that come from an indigenous-driven perspective that don't just remove people from land, but really recognize important connections to the land. These things make a big difference for conservation successes. And so then you can argue in favor of something that works rather than just a movement away from something that's broken. And to my mind, that's where our greatest power for amplifying solutions sits, is in our capacity to know others care about it and that those things exist and we we deserve them. We need to be doing them. I really like that. Let's protest for something that works. Let's protest for clean air, for clean water. And we can support even smaller projects that take place in individual communities because people want solutions. Yeah, and in fact, I think those are becoming the protest of our time. I think those youth who I mentioned who are talking about climate change, what they're really talking about is climate justice. And that climate justice is about an inequitable world that needs to be equitable. And they are not asking for sustainability. They're asking for transformation. They're demanding a more just world. And I I think we see it now, you know, a number of urban forests, for example, so tree planting that goes on in cities, because now we can map those and see very clearly who has trees on their streets and who doesn't. That becomes a social justice issue because we know more streets with trees, less crime, better health. There's a lot of social health indicators that are tied now to trees. And so when we're asking for trees, it's not just about carbon capture. It's about 
all of these other health benefits too. And I think one of the important things that's happening now is this recognition of through COVID very much driving home that our health issues are collectively experienced and they are underscored by injustice, you know, how they play out and they're closely tied and have implications for climate change, biodiversity loss and things. So I think this idea of one health is becoming a very important unifier. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us that can help us shift our thinking about hope and climate change? Well, there's a couple of things. One is to be really aware that that emotions are contagious. And so when you are recognizing that the vast majority of media that you take in about the environment or climate change or whatever issue you're looking at is problem identification oriented. So recognizing that and saying, okay, when I'm really concerned about an issue, I'm going to look on either the solutions journalism story tracker, or I'm going to subscribe. I subscribe to Grist, which sends me a weekly update on solutions that are fact-based, or I'll even just do a Google search that says, you know, elephant populations, solutions and successes, you know, so I put in that additional keywords because I want to see what's working and how much of it is working and and what is helping that work. So really actively seeking when there's an issue you really care about for the solutions rather than getting caught up in the despair of the problems only. I think that's really important. And then I think that really seeing that choosing to be hopeful is a powerful political act. It isn't a sort of Pollyannish view of looking on the bright side and, you know, isn't like thinking of small things. It's really saying we know that three out of four people in this crucial age range, which is almost, well, it's the largest demographic on earth, are feeling like we don't have a future, that is a not where we can make any good progress from. We must do more work on staying up to date. And I guess that's partly what I'd say is because environmental problems are seen to be, it was great and now it's all wrecked, we often don't bother to look to see if that's changed. And, you know, if you and I were talking about politics or we were talking about sports, I would not come on here without checking, you know, what was the most recent score or who's in office. But I would argue that many people would come on perhaps talking about the environment and not be up to date on what's going on with, you know, the city of New York City just brought in new new legislation around each new building that they build of a certain size has to not use fossil fuels because they are trying to achieve net zero and they're not going to get that if they approve buildings going in the other way. So staying up to date so that we know what initiatives are happening and then pushing our city to do the same thing is how we stay hopeful and how we make the actual changes that are so important to us. So I really think a lot of times people think hope is about being blind and I think it's about really seeing. That's beautiful. Hope is about really seeing, not about being blind. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, and I am so grateful and appreciative of all the work you're doing. Your book is so helpful, and it was helpful to me personally because I want this podcast to be hopeful in a solid way, and your work offers such an expansive way to view hope. Now I have, I have, uh, I have an arsenal here, so I, and I <laughs> want to... <laughs> I'm going to promote your book again, Hope Matters, Why Changing the Way We Think is Critical to Solving the Environmental Crisis by Dr. Ellen Kelsey. It's available almost everywhere. 
the usual places. You also have a website, uh, several. There's also Ocean Optimism. If you're looking for more solutions, you can go to Ocean Optimism. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And if anyone who's listening, the thing I really, really want to do is to create a site where it's very easy for people to see up to the moment changes that are happening. That information exists, but it doesn't exist in one place. So someone who's a real web person or, uh, you know, really thinks about big data sets and how we could create that, I would love to hear from you. That'd be super helpful. Thank you. I think that person's out there. Hopefully they're listening. Thank you again so much for being on the show. And I I always ask my guests, is there another woman environmentalist who has inspired you or who inspires you now? Mm, There's two that come to mind right away. One is Lori Marino, who is a person who looks a lot at the anatomy and intelligence of cetaceans and who went on to create a lot of work around animal rights versus sentience. And we're certainly seeing the rise of animal rights, I think, in a whole new way in the last period of time, which I think goes part and parcel with recognizing these highly intelligent, emotional, agentic other species. So I really admire Lori Marino and and the work she's doing there. And then Suzanne Simard, who is a scientist who did a lot of the work on recognizing trees as community members who are tied through their microcelial networks, you know, through their nerve and fungal networks or nerve root and fungal networks. And the reason I think of both of those women is they're very highly accomplished women, and they've also chosen to do brave things. So it's a brave thing for a cetacean biologist to move in the animal rights end of things, and it's a brave thing. Suzanne Samard intentionally talked about mother trees, even though she knew that her forestry colleagues might diminish the way they thought of her work if she used that terminology, but she made that choice based on, she said, that's what they're doing, and that's how I want to talk about it. So I admire people who are brave. They read their social situation. They know what they're up against and they still make a choice. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you again for joining us today on Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic. Thank you. That was great. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to follow us on social media, Instagram and Twitter at eVoicesRising and subscribe on our website, evoicesrising.com. Share this podcast. Catherine Hayhoe, environmental scientist, says, just start by doing something, anything, and then talk about it. Talk about how it matters. Talk about how it matters with your friends and family. Connect the dots, and you can make a difference. Stay tuned for more episodes. Until next time...